We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How are you doing, Roth? I'm doing all right, man. How are things? I am seeing you in three days, Roth. I'm coming to you. I'm coming it's to your friend. city. Yeah, so Drew's uh, coming up here, and we're going to, I don't know what, we, other than doing a little bit of fishing in the East River, which I insisted on, mm. I don't know what we're going to do. Mm. But we're going to get some bass. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to party hard. We're going to be on a rooftop yeah. at, like, Lauren's apartment, and then that's it. That's all I got. I got nothing else. Well, yeah, I, that's fine. I mean, that's honestly a lot for me. Like, a 70-minute subway ride both ways. Like, this is basically, just doing that is more than I've done in 14 months. I actually, I, I never watch Saturday Night Live anymore, but I had a, uh, I had an idea for a sketch, like, right Right as the, like, earlier spring, like, as everyone else is getting vaccinated, and it was going to be a sketch where, like, all these families get together, like, for the first time since the pandemic ended, like, all these couples, and they're like, they're like, wow, it's so great to see each other. Can we, can we take our masks off? Yeah, sure, we can take our masks off. Can we hug? Yeah, sure, we can hug. Can we kiss? We can, we can kiss with <laughs> tongues. And can we can we fuck each other? And that just devolves into a total like baby oil orgy. Like that. Was yeah, my- that was basically that. That happened to Trump's brain after he got the uh, <laughs> his special treatment, where he got like the steroids and stuff. And he's like, "I'm gonna go in the audience and lick everybody." And everybody <laughs> had to be like, "So good, sir." We yeah, really look forward to you doing that. Instead of the flagpole, I'm humping you. Yeah, huh? <laughs> what a treat! Hey, guess what? We have a guest. It is oh, really. Yes, we have a guest this week. It's the founder of Deadspin, contributing editor of New York Magazine, and a novelist of How Lucky. I can't, I can't believe I just fucked that up. Author of How Lucky, the new novel that came out on Tuesday and already been uh, acclaimed by Carl Hyacin and Stephen King, no less. It's Will Leach. I will. Wow, it's Will Leach. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I also stumble over the notion of referring to myself as a novelist. It is a very weird description that suddenly popped up a little bit. So, But thank, it's an honor to be on with both of you. A, lo- a long-time listener, first-time guest. Yeah, this I, is weird that this is actually the first time that you've somehow been on, but it it's is, almost, uh, it's, nice a, it's almost rude. We waited this long, honestly. Well, you know, back in the early days, I remember the old, old Deadspin podcast that you did, which I actually once wrote a, po- a guest post for Deadspin counting the number of times that you said fuck yes. on it, Drew. If you remember, I remember. If you remember that. I remember you said I was raised in Deadwood, which is actually cr- correct. It's true. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I remember that old podcast. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I go way back. That one I was on a lot. This one, this one, this is the, uh, this is the new era. I think you have much better people to choose from. No, I don't know about that. You're still all right. You're still. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, I will take. I will take all. Let's talk about the book. Uh, It is your first adult novel because you had you had the YA novel catch. We talked about this before the. We started this novel recording. is appropriate for adults of all ages. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, is, this is the novel After Dark, is yep. what this one is. <laughs> so it's a Silk Stalkings novelization. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Let me, let me ask the, uh, the Larry King question. Say, tell me about your book. What's this book about? All right. All right. So, uh, well, basically, it is plot wise, it is. It takes place here in Athens, Georgia, uh, where I live. And this is about a man named Daniel who is 26 years old and has a uh, disease called spinal muscular atrophy, uh, which is a disease that has affected our family. Uh, my son's best friend has it, and uh, I started. I've done a lot of research with him and, and talked to him about it, and basically talked to just a lot of people about it. And he, uh, he Daniel, witnesses a 
what he believes may or may not be an abduction of a student. And uh, so the book is him trying to both kind of figure out what happened and if he can figure out what happened, uh, being able to communicate uh, uh, what happened, which is very difficult for him because not only does his spinal muscular atrophy, the best way to describe it, it's a shorthand way to put it, but it's basically like ALS for kids. Right. It's like a really, really terrible thing. And so he's really, not only is he like, does he use a wheelchair he, and uh, he can really kind of only move his extremities and he can't talk, which makes it extremely difficult, as you might suspect, to, uh, to report to the authorities of Athens, Georgia, most of which are really not that interested in investigating crimes anyway, which uh, which is also uh, something to keep in mind. When you did the research for the book, did you talk to your son's friend and to his parents, and were they okay with you making this into a character? Did you have to get their approval or anything like that as you were writing it? Oh, they were the first of many people that, that I talked to about it, and I would have never even thought about moving forward if I hadn't talked to them from the get-go. Right. Uh, you know, they one of the major characters in the book is actually Daniel's mom, who is based on my friend Miller's uh, uh, my friend Miller's mom, uh, Lindsay, and she uh, her big thing is that she gets very frustrated that because you know. The thing about the disease is Miller has it, and he, you know he's the same age as my son. And so up until around the age of two or three, you would have not been able to tell any difference between them at all. It's just the body; his body started to break down around about three or four. And now there's a drug called Spinraza, which helps out, which has made a big difference for for a lot of people. But her big thing was like there; she doesn't do anything for Miller other than that. What is the minimum of what is absolutely necessary? She really wants him to have as autonomous life as possible. She's seen a lot of mothers who have not necessarily raised their kids that way she calls it the disneyfication of the kids where like there are 23 year olds wearing like goofy underwear and she really wants to fight that and so uh um I, yeah but yeah i went with them and, and from them i was able to talk to a lot of other people who both uh they do a race every year called the go miller go race where they have a bunch of people w- with sma and their families come in so i talked to a ton of people at that i uh you know this is a fiction thing but this is definitely one of those things where i tried to do my i can never truly no and i can never truly get it right or frankly probably even come as close nearly as close as i'd like to but i only tried to do like the journalism part of this and like talk to everyone as possible i've had people read it and say uh the people that have disabilities and read it and say well i kept waiting for the point that you would fuck it up and for the record in the early versions there was a lot of that <laughs> like there was a lot of stuff that i fucked up but you know people read it and said yeah you fucked this up fix that and and from that i was able to get even kind of more detail about well, it which, which helped like just waiting to cancel you with every turn of the page <laughs> and i don't i get it i get it i get it so like and, and that's why i did not like say hey i wrote this thing here harper print this i'm sure it'll be fine so uh, yeah i think you, you don't, we definitely wanted to, to cover everything that we could. i actually i wrote uh not to back to me it but I, I i wrote about my brain for a book that comes out in october and i wrote about the fact that i went deaf uh you know i i'm half deaf i have a cochlear implant i have a hearing aid in the other ear because the other ear is not 100 percent either um and so i said in the book i'm deaf and then I said, I am disabled. And then I watched Sound of Metal, like right as it, the book was closing. And I was like, you know what? I better, I better, I better rework that just a <laughs> like little bit. Like hedge that a bit? Yeah, yeah I, better, I better hedge that a little bit because I, I know, you know, I, I spoke to people in the deaf community and, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I know all the variations of how deaf people perceive themselves, myself included. And it's, it's, it's a full spectrum. So you have to be very... Yeah, cognizant of that that stuff, and I don't mean that in the Simmons like, oh God, I have to care about other people. <laughs> where, but in the just like, okay, it's your job to learn this shit as you as you go along, and that's what makes good fiction too. Uh, now you know, right, Leach? Like, like yeah, it's I, I was. 
Yeah, I was pretty anal retentive about it, to be entirely honest. I was I was very insistent to get everything as right as I could to the point that was kind of annoying my, frankly, my editor for a while, who was just like, well, it's fine. I remember I, at one point I talked to my agent early on and he said, well, it's fiction. It'll be fine. Just like, like as long as they don't like, as long as a character doesn't like burst into flames or spring wings as a unicorn, it's fine. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think, this is definitely what I wanted to, to try to get as right as possible. We And listen, you know, we just got a nice review from the, uh, from the Washington Post uh, written by by the uh, father of someone who actually died of SMA uh, in January. And so, uh, and he rightly pointed out, like, okay, this isn't quite right, but clearly the, the this part, this individual part's not quite right. But on the whole, clearly the, the research was done. I, that, that was the best I could do is just do the research. The best yeah, the detail's important because like when Philip Meyer wrote The Sun, he like had a character who had like, was like a tanner. He went and learned how to tan hides for the book because you get all those details right if you fucking do it. And like when Michael Mann shot thief and he, like the characters had to break into a safe he's like he said to the actress he's like break into the safe like you fucking figure it out like all that stuff all that <laughs> stuff shows up all that diligence is is there and that's what makes it and also it makes it easier on you the author because you know like the whole the whole mythos of the bl- of the blank page and how intimidating it is there is no blank page if you've done the research and you already got a bunch of shit you know that you know you have to work off of you know what i mean I couldn't wait to tell all the stuff I learned. Yeah! Any kind of, any kind of like, uh, good writer would want to do. So, yeah, you know, you, you do the best you can, on and and I'm I, I'm happy with how it's turned out. But, uh, yeah, it was it was certainly weird. And, you know, fiction is weirder anyway, because at first I thought, oh, awesome, I can write a fiction novel. I can just, uh, as opposed to a nonfiction novel, uh, I can write a novel where I can just make the people do what I, I'm sure you've had this, Drew, where I can just make the people do what I want. This is awesome. Yeah, it's fucking great. But then you go into the process, you're like, the problem is, is when you're writing something about real people, you can hit a point where you're like, they do something irrational. And you can just be like, well, people are crazy. Like, people do some crazy shit sometimes. But in a novel, you have to, everything has to be explained. Everything has to have some sort of justification for it. Whereas in real life, I write about people all the time, myself included, who do dumb shit because they do dumb shit sometimes. <laughs> and so in the novel, you can't do that. So I, I was disappointed that actually I was, I was unable to bend the rules of space and time. And I still had to have justifications for what everybody does. <laughs> yeah, you, got, you paint yourself into a lot annoying corners because you're like wow i made this up and now i have to figure out how the character got from the gas station to like tokyo in 10 minutes yeah. for this one scene. and you want to be like i wrote the book he's a unicorn yeah. like who cares well, you yeah. have more this responsibility than like the author of the actual universe does like you have to impose <laughs> order on this shit whereas like at this point whatever it is that's supposedly in charge of how we're doing things it's just like i don't know whatever he's 43 yeah. now <laughs> like, <laughs> that's right i mean honestly you hear this a lot about like this is a common thing that comes up you saw this obviously in the last few years and i, I see this all the time with your stuff david is like you read stuff and be like okay well obviously Obviously, there just are no rules of logic or rationality or anything all in the world, and we've just all accepted that that's the place we live in now. But you can't actually do that. Yeah. Like, I would love to be able to do that, but now, like, there's nothing. There's literally nothing you could write about the last three or four years that wouldn't be like, yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds like something that would happen. So I'm gonna ask a noob question because I am the one person that's not written. I mean, I wrote a novel when I was in my 20s. It was not publishable, uh, and that's for the best. But like, so in terms of this, it seems like there's a great deal of, of research that you did. And then also you've got this other plot. Like, as somebody who has not written a novel that had a plot, uh, my novel was, was about being sad, which is different uh, than having a story. <laughs> I would read that. Nah, you, you say that, but, but what, what I'm curious about with it is like, to what extent the, um, did those two things operate in parallel? Like, did you come out with like basically wanting to tell a mystery story and then like as the... 
the research that you did into this real disease, like, did that alter the way that the story was told? Like, did it, like, how did the two inform each other, I guess? Uh, the first thing was getting Daniel right. Mm-hmm. Daniel, I actually, I, then, I, then I, realized, okay, I, realized, I realized I understood Daniel, I understood who he was. And then, frankly, I needed to find something for him to do. Oh. <laughs> like, and, uh, and so uh, one of the, 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 the actual uh, plot is actually based on something that happened at the University of Illinois actually a few years ago where there was a Chinese-American student who was abducted by a graduate student there. And, uh, Holy shit. Uh, and, that, and that, that was like a big – I feel like if that case would have happened two or three years later, it would have gotten a lot more uh, kind of publicity than it did. And it was, a, it was a really big deal at the University of Illinois. And I got kind of obsessed with the idea that the guy that uh, took her, they had like a vigil on campus and they were like the local news crews were all, were all there. And they, they, cause they didn't know, they didn't, they didn't know what had happened yet. And later they found out that he showed up at the vigil and like gave an interview to the local news station about how we're all so worried about her. Oh, I obsessed wow. with that kind of like the shittiness of that. And, and so, uh, so I figured to be able to, that story kind of stuck with me. And then I had Daniel. So I was like, you know, what? I feel like that is like, that's something like it's a, it's obviously you're informed by rear window and that, and that kind of notion, the story goes off in a lot of different places, but that was the idea for, for something for Daniel to do was to have th- that kind of notion. That's where the fiction part is so beautiful. Cause you can take what you know, right. And you say, Oh, I have this character, but it can't just be about this character, you know, existing and just you know just not not doing anything oh i I can factor in oh i know this other murder mystery that i know about i can fold that in oh no i can i can make i can have there be a fucking demon land and like he has to fight the demon like that's where the coolness of fiction is because you take what you know and you can use it that doesn't have to be exactly as it is in real life you can actually you can manipulate it so that it's so that you have a reader being like oh 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 shit just got real that's cool i didn't know crabs could do that (laughs) that's right theoretically (laughs) Theoretically speaking, yes, theoretically speaking. But yeah, it's fun to watch them collide that way. You know, I mean, Drew, you know this too. I don't, like, the, some of it was plot. I actually wrote this whole thing before I, I had even, the only person that knew I was even working on this was my wife. I actually, like, wrote the whole thing and then I called my agent, who I had not written a book for in 10 years, when I was in New York and said, can we please come meet me for dinner? And I literally, like, physically handed him the book at dinner like it was Wonder Boys. Look at you! <laughs> yeah, I know, so unnecessarily dramatic, like some kind of schmuck. And uh, and he's like, well, thank you, but, you know, now I have to carry this shit around everywhere all night. I was like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. I have, like, it on a file. I'll email it to you tomorrow morning. <laughs> here's a uh, here's but, a thumb drive. <laughs> yeah, it just it's less. It is, if, if this were like a '90s movie, I'd have left it in a cab or something, and the whole thing would have been lost. But I like. But the point is, is that like you know, so much of that, I kind of was flying blind across the board. You don't know how things are. Uh, I didn't. I didn't map out the whole thing beforehand. I didn't like workshop it or anything. I just kind of put those things together, saw, collided them, and saw what happened. And then fortunately had actual professionals to fix all the things that I got wrong in that first thing and, uh, and put it together where it made more well, sense. Well, so I don't, I don't outline either because I need to be in it yeah. for everything to sort of reveal itself yeah. to me. And you can fix it later. You can fix it later if you have. That, well, that's the other thing. That was the good um, – that's something I've sort of gone – that's an edict I've sort of unwittingly followed throughout my writing career where it's – John Schwartzwelder of The Simpsons just told, the, told New York Magazine about this where he's like, I write the script, and if the script sucks, I don't really give a fuck because at least it's done, and then I can just go back and fix it. So, like, you've written something. So, like, that's always been the, you know, my method is like, okay, just as long as it's down, then I don't have to worry about the fact that it doesn't exist. Like, it exists, so then I can make it better. And I like, I like writing that way. Plus, it, it spares me from having to do outlines like a fucking nerd, so I don't do that. 
His thing was great. His thing was real, like, basic. It was like, Homer walks into a room and waves to Lisa. Yeah, he was like, I'll, I will write a shitty joke now so I can get to <laughs> right. the next thing. Which I thought was really impressive. Like, is that, I've tried to do that. I think you can see when I'm, like, struggling with something. It's like there's a style of writing that, like, the bad version of me that I'll have in there. But I'll let myself write those sorts of sentences and then just trust that, like, either I will do it or like fucking Barry will do it at the end at some point to just make sure that it doesn't wind up like that in there. But it's weird to see somebody who like, I actually respect as opposed to like myself (laughs) being like, yeah, that's how you do it. Like just get to the last word and then go back and fix. Well, what's clever about what he does is that, you know, he couldn't put Greek copy in there. Like he just could put TK, 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 but he has what he puts the most basic version of what needs to be communicated there. So like he knows what has to go there. Like what, co- like what the joke has to convey. It's just being conveyed right now in, a very, in very stupid terms. Like there's, there's a way to punch it up a little bit. But he's not just having like what is essentially a blank space of, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy or whatever the fuck. Is that, so you've talked about like when we've talked about it, like Swartz Welder, like you, like comes from advertising. Is that like a copywriting trick or is that just like a way that some types of brains work? No, I I just think advertising because uh, like there are a lot of writers who started out in advertising, like running with scissors guy Augustin Burroughs and James Joyce and stuff like that. The the thing about advertising is that because you have limits in terms of okay, the radio ad has to be sixty seconds long and can't literally cannot be longer than that, so it has to be one hundred eighty words or less. Okay, this billboard has to be seven words or less because otherwise motorists passing by won't be able to read the fucking thing. So like you have all those constraints and then you're given all these tones too. So it's like in the morning you're working on a very serious PSA for cancer or something like that. And then in the afternoon, well, you're actually, you're doing a radio ad now for orange Julius and it has to feature like a monkey, like shit in his pants, like in front of like (laughs) all the mall customers. So like you have to go through all these different tones and all these different styles and all these different formats and that's really good when you get to actual writing and like r- actual writing, there is essentially freedom. You can write anything, but you already know that you have to put certain, put yourself within certain boxes so you can operate within a structure that's going to get more out of you than if you're just like farting around like Larry King ramblings on, you know, on the page or whatever. This is why the three of us are so famous for writing so short. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Three classic disciplined craftsmen. Like One thing that tip I give young writers is just go through and add a sentence comparing someone to Ham to every draft you do right before you publish it. Uh, Can we talk about sports? This is ostensibly a sports podcast. Let's take a break and come back and talk about sports. And we're back. Now we have to actually talk about sports. Luckily, uh, Leach uh, founded a sports website, uh, also known as a blog, that Roth and I may or may not have been employed by. Like Fansided, so re- right? Yeah, I rel- love it. relatively I love recently. Fansided. Yard Barker. It was yep. Yard Barker. <laughs> oh, my God. I remember- oh, fuck. I totally remember Yard Barker. Holy shit. That's <laughs> we're going to remember some sites. I, you know what? I really do love remembering sites. Like my friend fan Justin House. Halpern. Do we love Fan House, folks? <laughs> yeah. Like my friend Justin Halpern like, ran Holy Taco. And like I love remembering Holy Taco just for the name. and like, like Progressive Boink. That's a good yeah, one. Yeah. And like, like I used to go Gorilla Mask all the time, like in like yeah. 2005 and shit like that. Like 
where it would be like, here's some zany shit, and then here's some boobs. And I was like, oh, this is the best site ever. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we're, we somehow we, we ended up not talking about sports. Sports. Uh, Leach, of course, your sport of choice is baseball. And what a coincidence. David Roth also likes baseball. So can we talk about some baseball? Sure. Good. Let me ask you, what's wrong with the goddamn baseball? What'd they do to it to fuck it all up? <laughs> no, the, he's talking about the literal baseball. Yeah, the it's literal not like, baseball. It's not like, what's the, the deal with they make orange juice too yeah. strong these days? Like, he's no, not a grouse. <laughs> it's not a general grouse. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it works really in both ways yeah. if, you, if you want to do it. But uh, I I don't know. I mean, like, the the... the the problem is when you mess with it once, you just inevitably – it's like, like getting back in the old VCR days when you had the tracking. And if you, like, mess it one way, you're never going to get it exactly right. And I feel like the baseball is kind of what they've done with that. They, they messed it up. They, they tried to screw it up one way, and so then they overscrewed it up. So then they tried to overscrew it up that way. And that now, now everyone's onto it, and so now we'll, there is no ba- – there's no room tone of, uh, of baseballs anymore. It's, to me, like, it's so predictable that it would go this way, not just because it's, like – billionaires and rob manfred trying to solve a difficult problem which is like just basically trying to have it's like giving a spaniel a rubik's cube you know like it's not like it's not gonna work out for you it might be funny to watch but like it's not gonna get you where you need to be on that and it seems like in this case i guess they like by de-juicing the ball and by also making it spin more than it did like this is obviously the way it would go like if you insist on messing with the baseball instead of like lowering the mound or like if you're really worried about there being like too much offense like there's a you know then do stuff with the actual field or with the like the shape of the game as opposed to like messing with the actual sporting goods and then being like yeah no we didn't do that the whole fucking league is hitting like aaron miles now it's like it's like 235 298 380 like is like the lines on it like if the whole league is like struggling to hit 235 then you blew it it's like the um, the whole uh, it's like the orange roundy in the NBA. You remember the orange roundy leech when they changed the the basketball like to the mm-hmm. synthetic one? Oh, Stern yeah. wanted, yeah. and all the players were like, "This is a piece of shit. We don't want to play with this." And the NBA corrected it, right? Because it's like, you know, if if I said to you, Leach, you know, you really you wrote a really great novel, but your next novel. Why don't you write entirely in highlighter? Like, if you fuck with the fundamental <laughs> equipment of the sport. No matter how you, no matter how you change it, it's going to really fuck with how players go about their business. Am I am I wrong, Leach? Yeah, and the problem is too is it, it like one little change makes such a dramatic difference. Like I think that's the thing too. That's why I go back to the tracking thing. Is like once you mess one thing up, everything starts rolling yeah. too too far. And you almost like there's an old thing where Oral uh, Hershiser, when he was at the pitcher for the Dodgers, used to say that like the way that he said he was effective was he would move one eighth of the inch left on the rubber or one eighth of the inch right on the rubber, and otherwise throw exactly the same way. And he said all of a sudden that was a great inside pitcher to left-handed hitters and. Like this very tall thing just willows out into a very small thing, willows out into a much larger thing. To me, that's the problem with the ball is like once you mess with it, you can never like who even knows what the balls were like before now. Yeah. Like I think that's kind of the issue. You can't really get back to what it was in the first place because now you've moved it this way and now you moved it this way. And you're never going to get it. Exactly it's such right. a classic way to misunderstand it, too. Like it feels so Manfred and so like owners circa now the idea of like not understanding that like fundamental dynamic tension that holds the whole game in place right that like that makes it work the interplay between the pitchers and the hitters or whatever like you can't just like tweak one thing and expect everything else to sort of fall into place like it's very delicate as it is 
And so, like, whatever. The the idea of, like, unintended consequences. Like, yeah, I don't think that they intended this. But I also don't think that they really, like, worked very hard on thinking about what their intentions were to begin with. Like, that's, like, the single characteristic of the, the Manfred era is, like, tweaking for tweaking's sake and then also trying to fight some sort of stupid campaign against the Players Association and the press every fucking day. And then you have to overcorrect, which is what you're seeing in like, and listen, I think some of the things they're doing in the minor leagues are potentially interesting. Same. I don't think they're, I'm fine they're inherently it. like bad, but it just feels like you're going to tweak here. And next thing you know, you're going to look in like five years and the bases are like four feet long and, and, yeah. and there's a moat or something like it. Like, I think that's the issue is you, you the small changes you to, to, to fix them. You try all these other things. And the, what's funny is you're going to satisfy no one. Like I'm always, a little suspicious of the idea that baseball is so bad now for the, for the same reason that like I remember loving Ken Griffey Jr. and watching you know everyone scream about Oval Team and Mickey Mantle and how his hat that was hat was backwards and I realize I am now the age of those people yeah so like I'm very cautious of being too like this is the way it's supposed to be and this is wrong I and I don't know I the theoretical cool 17 year old baseball fan uh, is that uh, who probably doesn't exist yeah, but let's just say, pretend like, for the sake of discussion but that theoretical person is he like you know what's awesome homers and walks like I don't know like maybe maybe they're growing up with this game in a way that feels weird to me because I remember the Willie Wilson and Vince Coleman baseball when I grew up and maybe they like this more I'm all, I doubt it it doesn't seem like they would but it feels weird I'm always a little cautious to be baseball is bad now and it was good before because I've just seen that be wrong so many times yeah. but it does feel like something is askew in a way that uh, I'm not sure exactly the right way to fix it now Marchman wrote a really good piece about this at, at the old site about um, like basically about how Manfred needs to like either make it clear that he actually likes baseball or at least stop fucking talking about it the way that he does. Like it's clear that all of this is like coming from an idea that like something is very badly broken in there and that like it doesn't really matter that much, but also it has to be fixed right away. And I think like all of the, the tinkering there, like it's clear that there's, you know, things in the game that could be better. I think that like what, you know, the baseball that you and I remember from our childhoods it just was more aesthetically varied. You know, that there was different approaches, different teams. I mean, like the Cardinals as a team, because they had that terrible turf, had like a way of playing that was like, you know, in the way that like the NFL used to have like run and shoot offenses or whatever, you know, that they like built their personnel around this weird scheme that was grounded in, you know, that happenstance of their crappy stadium. Well, the other thing is that if, if Manfred is constantly toying with it, He's essentially sending a message, uh, you know, a subliminal message, or not too subliminal, to fans and to media and stuff that there is something wrong with this sport. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It says the sport is fundamentally flawed in a way that we're trying to fix and we're working through it, which is actually what the NFL usually does, because every NFL offseason, they're fucking with it. Meanwhile, the NFL, the, uh, the ratings for baseball are up. So essentially, they could have said, no, nah, it's fucking fine. And it would have been fine. Am I wrong? That's what's so bizarre about it is that, like, the the, th- the stuff they sell, like, because baseball's like, the labor is the product, right? Like, yeah. it's the players. And the players are fucking cool. They've always been cool, but they're, like, cooler now than, like, I, you know, certainly, like, the, whatever. If we're going by gifts of pitches doing awesome things, we are in a renaissance period. Right <laughs> we also, yeah, and oh, go ahead, please. I, but no, but I also think this also goes back to kind of the other idea, though the idea that you know if 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 you look back at 
baseball before the idea of like if they, if we had if they hadn't touched baseball if they hadn't messed with baseball at all and, and not not done all this we're going to change this we're going to change this we're going to change this there would be that uptick but like baseball fans are so hesitant old school baseball fans the the Matt Damon looking at the at this at the uh, at, at, at the Stillwater guy looking like is that a bad <laughs> the great Spencer Hall the great Spencer Hall joke and but there's so many baseball fans like that I've told a few of them are Cardinals fans I haven't met any Dude. but uh, uh <laughs> Uh, uh, anyway, the point is, is is that that kind of idea. Look at the NFL. The NFL and the NBA are great examples of this. The NFL just changes rules all the time, and I really don't feel like there are a lot of people that watch the NFL and say, "Wow, you know what? Glanville days were the best days of that. Why can't yeah. we get back to that?" Anybody like the uniforms or something, or like the NBA? The NBA has this. Like the NBA has the. Let's think about a second. The NBA rule at the end of the game. Chuck, the writer Chuck Closeman wrote about this once about how if there's under like thirty seconds left, you can just call timeout after you've gotten the ball and space and time. Time is totally bent. They just get to move the ball to half court. No time has passed. And it's totally an unfair rule, but it makes the game more fun. So everyone's like, this is awesome. Let's do more of it. Yeah, I remember him bitching about that one. Yeah, but there are no, I think he's wrong to bitch about it. I think it's great that he's doing, that they do it. And it's not like people look at it and be like, well, you know, that would have never flown in the George Mikan days. And like, there's nothing like that. And baseball, I feel like is, I think this is something that baseball should work more in its favor than against its favor. If they would just say, like the everyone feels like baseball was best when they first fell in love with baseball, which means they really love baseball. Like that's what that means. Is it means something eternal, uh, and they always want to hang on to it about it. If you steer into the skid with that, ra- uh, rather than say, "Oh crap, we have to change it," or "No, it should never change," I think that that's what they get. But they always get kind of caught up in this middle ground. And I think that's what hurts them. Yeah, and that I think it's also like the Manfred thing of like the number one problem with baseball is that there's too much of it in every game. Like the games are too long, but all of this stuff, the idea of <laughs> like the, whatever the ghost runner and extra innings and stuff, it all has the feeling of like a dad looking at his watch at like the end of an excruciating <laughs> little league game. <laughs> I've like, been there. The vibe you want really. Like. But have I ever <laughs> been there? Oh my God. Oh yeah. I will be, I was there last night. We'll be there again. Tonight. Can I, uh, oh, no, can I ask well. you happy baseball questions? Cause uh, yeah, the, it's all like because I'm someone who you know. Obviously, I'm a bigger football fan than I'm a baseball fan. But you never want me cruising in and being like, "What's wrong with baseball? The sport I don't ever really watch all that much until October." <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have so many thoughts about golf. I hate golf. I think it's stupid, but I still would want to fix everything about. Yeah, it yeah, golf is a good one. Golf is a good one for armchair <laughs> quarterbacking, where people are like, "Just <laughs> yeah. make the hole eight miles wide. That's fun." Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Let him shoot the ball. It's better if you don't care about it too, because you're just like, yeah. "There's nothing about it is sacred to you." Where you're like, exactly. Like everybody's wearing shorts now. Like that's. <laughs> so we were talking about this morning. Uh, the Angels have a. Uh, I would argue the two most exciting players in the sport right now, Mike Trout and Otani, and they fucking suck. Right, and I, I, Roth, I think Roth explained this, but Leach, can you explain to me how the Angels have fucked this up so badly, and how we can get Mike Trout and Otani to have better situations? How can how can we rescue these people? Yeah, the weird part about Trout and Otani is like they weren't like drafted there. Trout was drafted there, but they both could have left by now. Otani picked the Angels. Yeah. Trout extended with the Angels. Like they both had every opportunity to leave, and Trout. 
in particular should have known that I think it was because Joe, Joe, Joe Adele was coming up and there was some hope that there would be like young players coming up. And right at that time, the Angel minor league system looked like it was going to have a bunch of talent coming around Trout. And so that's when he signed the extension. And now, I mean, it's the, really the two major things. One is pitching, a, a basic inability to kind of develop pitching. But the other thing is, frankly, Marino sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Marino is just a truly, like, he is as close to you have now as like a Jerry Jones or a bad Steinbrenner. Like Ooh. he's, I would argue he's as close as he has. Most owners, and we, we all, you know, it's funny. There's all this like Steinbrenner revisionism. Like we need more Steinbrenners that go out, no. guys that go out there and want to win. Because you hear this because there's so many kind of bloodless baseball owners that don't really spend to, to win. They, you want more Steinbrenners. Moreno is what happens when you have a guy that doesn't know what he's doing, but is absolutely convinced that he does at all times. And he keeps digging them these bigger and bigger. Yeah, houses. that's, I think that's exactly it. I mean, it was the same thing with the Wilpons to a certain extent. It wasn't that, I mean, before they ran out of money, like it wasn't that they didn't care like it was that they wanted to win but they wanted they wanted to win their way and they wanted like the things that they believed to be right and they were not because they were just like rich guys who were unaccountable to anyone else they didn't update their beliefs to reflect the reality of those beliefs like coming up short year after year after year you know what it is marino it's like it's not that he won't spend money on on star hitters he does you know he's got when rendon comes back they're gonna have like three of the 10 best hitters in the American league on that team, you know, or best 15. And yet like it's the other stuff that Moreno doesn't care about is like why it's fucking Andrew Heaney and Dylan Bundy and like whoever else is filling out the back of the rotation. Well, you like, know what it is? It's the biggest problem is if you have an owner who wants credit, like, yeah. you know, when Jeffrey Lurie is sitting in the, you know, we talked about this, you know, he's, sitting, well, he's making the head coach have a meeting with him every Tuesday to break down game tape because he wants to contribute like he thinks that like his opinion and his expertise is actually going to help the team do anything so that he like he has a he's part of it like he's he's one of the reasons why yeah. That's when you That's get like into the, the Jerry shit. Jones disease. For it's sure. totally Jerry Jones's disease. I mean, it's really kind of, it's almost kind of like executive disease in all fields. It is yeah. like the idea, like like every everyone that's ever tried to get shit done and had someone above them be like. Hey, yeah, but how? What if they? What if they all wore funny hats yeah. or something? Yep. And and I think I think that's what it is. And I think and the problem is these guys are so, Marino in particular. Like he has made so many, like there's so many mistakes and so many obvious mistakes. We even talked about like C.J. Wilson. Like that's like a, a, a career altering, uh, franchise altering, horrible mistake that nobody even remembers because the Angels made like eight other ones that were worse. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you have it's a league with no salary cap, like you can do that. It's just like the lesson. It's like the same thing, you know, again, to go back to like Steinbrenner. They used to do that all the time. They would just be like sign Carl Pavano and he would instantly be like, I'm really more into drinking now. I don't think I really want to pitch for you. And like they would just be like, all right, fine. Then we'll sign somebody else. Like whereas like Moreno would make these obviously bad on their face, like sort of arbitrary decisions and then be like, well, we're going to stick with this pools thing for like nine and a half years. Well, because, uh, you know, that's just like we are committed to it. Well, the other thing is that um – like you, almost, you can't blame Mike Trout for signing a contract that paid him four hundred twenty-six and a half million dollars, right? Like anyone's going to take. I mean, they got money. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think that contract very well may have been offered by another team. Oh, that's true. But the other thing is that it used to be like I remember A Rod's big contract with the Rangers is the reason he left Seattle, and then it got transferred over to the Yankees. But I remember, and I don't, I just don't think it's true anymore. When you signed that big contract, there was an automatic spotlight that you got. Right? Because A-Rod's playing for the Rangers. And people didn't give a fuck about the Rangers before A-Rod got there. And they don't give a fuck about the Rangers now. But, like, because of the 
anomalous nature. And it was back when it was, this was back, you know, more when people were sort of like old people were outraged about player salaries. Like, what? They're just playing a game. And, you know, I think people are sort of over that. And so you don't get that automatic scrutiny that comes with the big contract because someone like Trout should, you know, I feel like he would have gotten the lead of Sports Center, like if he had signed that contract, like in 1992 or whatever the fuck. I also think the power dynamic is different than baseball. Like if if the NBA equivalent of Mike Trout said, "Get me out of here," that would become the central story in the NBA for like until he was traded. <laughs> like like this is the this is why everyone's waiting for Dame Lillard, right? If Damian Lillard at one point says, "I don't want to be in Portland anymore," and then the Knicks are like, "We're going to get him," it doesn't really work that way in baseball. There's no real like shutdown. Like the 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 the, the, the power in baseball is just so diffuse that like one NBA player can say, "I want out of here," and he can be traded because the NBA understands that the players have power. Now we'll find out if baseball understands this or not when they come to the CBA at the end. Yeah, of the I year. was going to say like you can literally like mark the date on your calendar when this will yeah. be adjudicated, like or yes. whatever, or just become the subject of a year long strike or whatever. The one thing I'd add to Drew's point, which I think makes sense, is that the Angels have that special kind of mediocre team thing where like. <laughs> It's such a black hole that nothing can escape. Like, it's not Otani's fault. It's not Trout's fault. Like, bad organizations, some bad organizations are just like that, where it's like, it's impossible to assess, like, what their processes are because they never change. Like, no one really, like, you know, can, like, 100% be counted on to remember that they're a part of the league at all. Like, I feel like if Pujols had retired... Instead of signing with the Angels, I would have thought of him more recently than I did, knowing that he'd played, you know, in Anaheim for nine and a half seasons. Like, there's just something anonymous about that space. Yeah. It's the Rockies idea. The Rockies are a little like that. Yes, for sure. Just like a purgatorial. Like, the Mets have had that in a different sort of way. Like, during the Wilpon years, they were like, I always thought of them as like kind of a hospice facility for like baseball careers, like mid-lane corner infield guys that want to like have 30 last plate appearances in a, like a dignified semi-private setting. That's like yeah. Brian Dahlbeck yeah. gets to yeah, be a yeah. Met for a little bit at the end. And they're like, well, <laughs> yeah. thank you for this everything. Is, this is how the NFL used to be with my Arizona Cardinals. It'd be like, hey, come on in and have your last season. Come right. on, yeah, it's, it's a dry and, heat, uh, Emmett yeah. Smith. You'll love it. <laughs> yeah, it'll help you help your breathing. It'll set a couple of years of, of, of life on you. Yeah. Uh, do you want to remember a guy, Leach? I'm, I'm always up for remembering a guy. I, I, I can't, to me, this is, like, I almost feel wrong even saying the words, let's remember a guy aloud. It is David's oh, thing no, and, uh, and your belongs, thing. And it belongs I feel to like, the universe, man. I, I do not feel like this should be open source. It wasn't even Roth's idea. I think the first remember a guy know, post was Tom Lay, right? Yeah, it was. So, and it was... Yeah. Why did you steal that idea from Tom? And also, he was too cool. weak to keep me from doing it. <laughs> but I do yeah. like the idea of being like, hey, remembering stuff is my thing. Yeah. You don't catch it. Jonah, you can't just take yeah. someone's idea. And uh, anyway, in, in very, very mild honor of you, Leach, your guy of the week is Willie McGee. It's Willie McGee. Remember that guy, Will Leach? Yeah, of course. Willie McGee was by. Willie McGee was, was and maybe perhaps still is 
more popular than Ozzy Smith in St. Louis. Willie McGee is, there's a retire 51 movement in St. Louis to this day. <laughs> there's a retire 51. If you go to a game, you will see people wearing retire 51 jerseys because they love Willie McGee. He's now, he's now a coach with, he's back uh, as a coach for, for the Cardinals. But we have Willie McGee traded for uh, Bob Sykes from Steinbrenner. That was a big thing yeah. that uh, Steinbrenner was, was furious about because he won the MVP in 1985. And Steinbrenner was furious that this guy that he had never heard of, like talk about something that's, that's Trumpian, the idea that like i'm really mad about this thing that i literally just discovered yeah. and no like, one heard a... about him nobody was talking about <laughs> willie mcgee they didn't say they didn't want you to know i just and so yeah that was that was a bit that, that i always remember the yankees aspect of that because i didn't even know what new york city was when willie mcgee played for the cardinals and so the idea that there was this big angry steinbrenner thing was uh, pretty amusing. that was a classic steinbrenner move too it was like they mostly tried not to develop young players because i think it bothered him but whenever they would <laughs> they would have to then they'd get traded for Ken Phelps, and then, right. yeah, uh, and then Larry David Bob as Sykes. George Steinbrenner gets really mad about it. I remember there was a Red Sox trade that Red Sox fans bitched about for eternity, and it involved, uh, like, Frank Lynn? No. Fred Lynn? No. Fred. It was, I think it involved Dennis Eckersley somehow Lynn or something. The Angels. There was, yeah, there, was, there was even the Jack Clark joke in the town if memory serves correctly. Uh, at one point, oh, uh, wow. when they were stealing stuff from Fenway Park, where they, where they have the big heist sequence, and someone says, hey, we're like Jack Clark! Oh, that's my Boston accent, by the way. Pretty good. Uh, <laughs> the, the, Is it the, really the, worse than Jeremy Renner's? I mean, I feel like it was... No. Like you were <laughs> no, right mine, there in the room. Mine, mine's pretty bad. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's the... Uh, but that, that was, that was the Jack Clark joke, that uh, we're going to steal more money from Fenway than Jack Clark did. By the way, I, I by the way, I was way off. I was way off. It was it was when the Red Sox traded Jeff Bagwell... Oh, for Larry Anderson. Oh, for Larry yeah. Anderson, and... I for a decade I never heard the fucking end of it from Red Sox fans, and I don't—I wasn't even a Yankees fan. They just bitched about it to me, even though I was just a person. Like I just—you just, were just there. Yeah, like if it wasn't you, it would have been like an elderly lady that it, couldn't get out of the it way. Absolutely would have been. They're still bitching about it now with their masks off. Like fuck, I hate Willie McGee. By the way, it's cool that that uh, he gave Will so many good times. Like every. One of those happy moments was extracted from me personally as a Mets fan <laughs> during and, my youth. Yeah. And such so an attractive man. One. He was just yeah. such a handsome yeah. man. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was what made it worse was I was like, <laughs> you know, guys want to want to be him. Uh, I don't I don't want to yeah. finish that thought. Let's just yeah, 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 keep exactly. it moving. We know we know where we're going. That's all right. Then we can play dead or canceled because that won't be awkward at all. You want to play dead or canceled, Leech? I would be very excited about that. All right. I'm going to give you a person. always so worried about this. Ever since Drew <laughs> pointed it out last week, I'm really. <laughs> all right. So uh, this is dead or canceled. I'm going to give you a person's name. You're going to tell me whether or not they're dead or they're canceled. If they're both dead is the one you answer. You got it? Got it. All right. Dead or canceled. Marvin Miller, is he dead or canceled, Will Leach? He is dead. He's dead. He died in 2012. He was never canceled. Marvin Miller inducted into the Hall of Fame against his... He did not want to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Like his death, it was like one of the last things he said before he died. Was like, yeah. Please do not put me in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Which, of course, baseball was like, oh, okay, yeah. Well, now he's dead. And so, suck it. You're going in. Yeah, that's baseball a Baseball loves to do that. They like to... It's like the... LDS practice of just like jumping you into the gang after you pass. Like in this case, it's yeah, like the idea that's like the one time they were able to beat Marvin Miller. They were like, well, what are you going to do to stop us this time yeah. now that you're medically dead? Uh, let's open up the fun bag. Uh, VB writes in Leach. He says, which athletes have the most and least fun during competition in team and in individual sports? So, which sport is the m- 
does it look like the professionals are having the most fun playing when they're playing it? And which ones look like they're having the least fun playing it? Um, I think le- I would say up until like the last three or four years, it would have been baseball. But in the least, I feel like that's changing a little bit now. Uh, I feel like uh, golfers definitely look like they're having the least fun now. You think I so? I yeah. I yeah, I don't. I think so. Because I, I mean, I look like put it this way: like even when they do something truly joyous, I mean, they just like at best they do a fist pump or they point at the hole. Right. I mean, those are those are not celebratory things. That doesn't look joyous to me. I I want to see like full on, you know, like uh, Brandy Chastain, you know, uh, uh, running around uh, screaming. You don't really see. Yeah, there's a, there's a glumness to golf for sure. I think uh, tennis to me just seems like they they seem miserable because it's so physically hard. And it's hot. That, oh, it's, it's hot. hot. Like they're out there for a really long time. Everyone's looking at them, like, and they can't ask anyone for help. Like, I that just is the like those people. I always feel bad for. I, it's like being at the. It's like being at the plate for four and a half hours. The one I, thing I will say <laughs> seems the most fun to me is like, I, maybe this is just that because I'm not him. I feel like being DK Metcalf during a football game would be fucking tight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by contrast. Playing offensive line, which I have played, yeah, sucks. Right. It sucks. Yeah, maybe you could offer some insight Horrible there. How uh, fun is that? It is so... <laughs> everyone else on the field is having fun except for you. <laughs> but golf is actually... I was going to contest you on that, Leach, because I was like, but golf's fun. But it's such a golfer move, such a PGA guy move to act like this fucking sucks when you get paid millions of dollars to go fucking to winged foot and bank it into the rough and get paid a million dollars to do it. Like they, so an they arbitrary really do. distinction that I have with golf is that the European golfers seem like they're having a great time and all American golfers seem fucking miserable constantly. Yeah, the well, difference between American yeah, the difference between American athletes and Euro athletes, that and like auto racing. Like the dramatic the dramatic difference between the oh, two yeah. of those is like pretty pretty severe. All these like F one bon vivants <laughs> and then over here it's just like yeah, like a, a million guys that are just like, Well, I wanted to be a cop, but like this was <laughs> <laughs> And F one's hard. I was in the pit. I was like I looked at the steering if you just look at an F one steering wheel, you'll you'll be like, Well, this person like has to be like an engineer, like how, like it's insane, like the amount of like just stress, like and they like, like they had to put, like I was with the McLaren team, they had to put the driver in the car and then like, like finish in inst- like building the car around him, to fit him <laughs> around in the car, like that's every fucking race, like yeah. they have like to getting like it. like Anne Hathaway getting stitched into a dress before the Oscars, yeah. but it's a car, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like that's terrible, like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mike writes in, Leach, he says, watching a baseball game right now, and someone just fouled the ball into the first base stands. The fans are separated, uh, so separated that the nearest guy just got up and casually walked over and picked up the foul ball. (laughs) This is kind of bullshit, right? I think as long as we're doing pandemic-limited crowds, you shouldn't get to keep the foul ball. It's just not very sporting. Leach, do you agree with Mike on that? I don't. Yeah. Uh, I was at, I was at a Yankee. I actually went to a Yankees game. Uh, it is. I have to say, going to I'm, it's going to be sad when they start letting more fans in because the percentage that you're the likelihood that you're sitting next to an asshole has been slashed dramatically. It's Ooh, so nice. Yeah. There's so fewer assholes near you. Uh, but there was a ball that came that came near us, and what was fun was what I realized very quickly was everyone converged on it, but they all had like some speed behind them <laughs> because they all had some, <laughs> some space to go. So I actually saw a collision. 
tension between two oh people coming God. from opposite sides of a row. Holy shit. And, uh, and they were nice about it. Neither one of them got the ball, of course, because, of course, it rolled down uh, before. But I, 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 I think that you should be able to keep the ball now. And I also think that you have a better excuse now not to do the thing that every sports writer I know is always yelling at people, oh, give it to a kid. Give it to a kid. That's what they always say. Give it to a kid. Give it. Give him a souvenir to a kid. Now you don't have to do that. Now you don't have to do that. Now yeah, no fuck them kids. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's cool. Also, I I I remember when they started doing limited capacity seating. I was like, oh, it'd be much easier to catch a foul ball. And then I swear, to, I've nobody. This is not prompted. I was like. That means that fuckhead Zach Campbell's going to collect. I had the four same thought. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, it increases your likelihood of getting a ball, but everywhere you turn, he's still fucking there. Yeah, yeah. Oh. like he's still there. Just like trucking a child. Yeah, like ah, it's very, it's cool. This yeah. is for me. Like this is. Yeah, this is part of my experience, man. I don't understand the haters. I, would, I don't get the haters, I would, man. I would, I would rather every fan in the stadium be Marlins man that have Zach Campbell attend another <laughs> goddamn game. I'm not ready to go that far. Uh, RD writes in. This one's a. This one's. This one's pretty deep, Leech. Has the decline of the network drama over the past 25 years indirectly led to the rise the rise of the far right, white nationalism, and Trumpism? When prestige dramas moved to cable and streaming, these people either couldn't navigate the new ecosystem, had no interest in the kind of dramas being na- made on these new platforms, or both. So you need a... He said, you need a streaming service to watch freaking Star Trek now. It's just easier for all these people to tune into Fox News each night with the added bonus of feeling the same kind of camaraderie they used to get from watching Northern Exposure along with 25 million of their fellow Americans. Am I on to something here? <laughs> I, I want would, I to be explicit and clear about this. This is obviously 100% the reason that this is going to happen over the last five years. <laughs> Nothing else latent in American history and culture <laughs> explains the turn towards fascism quite so well as the cancellation of Northern Exposure style shows. <laughs> His, yeah. Like, RD, RD, where am I going to see all these moose? <laughs> right. I would, I would agree with RD, except I know... I know that network TV is still quite popular, and I know exactly what kind of shit is on network TV right now. And it's very, very, very appealing to your average Missouri resident. You know, like they're like they're excited to see CSI NCIS uh, Albuquerque. Like that's what like- I like about this question is that it like sort of accidentally pushes like this is us into a very like a central role in healing America. <laughs> like the idea of like, we need more shows where like everybody just. Like hugs their mom and cries. Like yeah. that needs to to happen, or else like who knows where we'll all wind up as a yeah. society. I still don't know what this is us is about. I just see the ads and they're like, this is the one that changes everything. Like people like hug and I'm like, I'm like, people must be really into this show, but it looks like a piece of shit. If you there's a, there's a really funny tweet about it. I don't remember who it was that was like, I've not seen the show. I assume at the end all the characters climb into a giant bed together and die. <laughs> <laughs> to have that. The ads all have that energy to it. I always wanted to do a shitty tweet uh, that I'm sure everyone has done already, where it's like, actually, it's this is we. This is we. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I'm, I, it's nominative. I agree. I'm with you. It's nominative. <laughs> I'll let you one more question before we close out. Yes, uh, as, long as, as, as long as it's not about how cable streaming services has led to the interaction. <laughs> no, I thought it was. I, I thought it was. I thought it was rather intriguing. I liked it. Uh, ben writes in: While plenty of musicians have gained reputations as party animals, two have taken it to the next level and built their entire musical identities around the concept of nonstop balls to the wall partying. Andrew WK and LMFAO. 
While both share the same underlying ethos, their party styles diverge quite dramatically. Andrew WK is cheap beer, headbanging, and shout singing with your bros, whereas LMFAO is pricey liquor, shuffling, and trying to hook up the club. If you were sent back in time to your partying heyday, with all of your partying powers restored, Leech, which band do you think you'd be able to hang with the longest? And is that the same answer as the one you think you have more fun with? Are you a Andrew WK partier or LMFAO partier? <laughs> I I am definitely an Andrew WK uh, partier. If just because after I'm done partying, I will get into like self help and like kind of the world <laughs> that right. Andrew WK. Is. It's really remarkable. I my friend uh, my podcast partner podcast partner Tim Grierson did an interview with Andrew WK one time about like three or four years ago. At the end of it, I was legitimately moved and felt like I could could somehow connect with my loved ones a little bit better than I had before. So, uh, Andrew WK, it's been a long journey. It's been a long journey since Dave Grohl wrote all of his songs. That's and, right. Uh, and he I've, became that, the person that he is I now. totally buy that that conspiracy theory, too. <laughs> so, the, this is not confirmed. My sister was at the University of Michigan when Andrew WK, he was from Ann Arbor, was, like, living there. And she said that he would, like, just go up to people he thought looked cool on campus, like, just approach them physically and be like, hey, do you want to be in my band? And they'd be like, I don't know how to play instruments, man. And he's like, it's not important. But I don't think it worked out uh, you, for you, like you, anybody that just had like white jeans on. And he's like, oh, me too. Like, do you know how to play the drums? You have to do that, though. Like every like, at least like, you know, 80s and 90s or whatever. Like the, the history behind every rock band, there always had to be like a like a P.T. Barnum ringleader of the band, like stapling flyers to every fucking telephone pole and shit yeah. like that. Like it all, they all had to, they all had to do that, and so I can see Andrew WK being like, just like with those intense like eyes, like we're gonna, we're gonna have a band, we're gonna party. Are you in or not? It's like I'm just going to sociology. Yeah, you're class. like I, I might be joining a cult right now, but like I think we gotta do it. <laughs> I can play the washboard. That's yeah. all I've got. But I'm <laughs> with you. It takes. <laughs> Brandon yeah. Nix is our producer and engineer. <laughs> Daisy Rosario is our executive producer, and our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad free episodes of The Distraction. Only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget oh. to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com while you're at it. And buy Will Leach's new novel, How Lucky. And don't buy it just because I told you to. Buy it because Stephen King and Carl yeah, Hyacinth told to, you to. Don't listen to us, but do listen to Carl Hyacinth. Yeah, listen to the people who know Leach. It was nice having you on. Yeah, man. Oh, please! It was my pleasure. I'm. Uh, I love. I love everything you're doing over there. And honestly, I. I. I, I, I have not got a chance to actually tell you guys. Defector is so wonderful, and just thank you for doing it. And it is Aww. a legitimate good, happy thing in the world. So thanks. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you. Let's just thank each other until. Yeah, terrific. No, Are you really hang up. This episode <laughs> gratitude stuff. Okay, you're all welcome. You're all welcome. <laughs> we should. You gotta finish up and say. Actually, you know what? You're all pieces of shit. I hate you. I don't want. <laughs> he won't do it. I won't do it. I don't believe that that's true. Aww. I would not lie to you and your listeners. Yeah, but uh, it would have been fun. It's been like, oh, bastard. I, I secretly defect is <laughs> awful. I don't like it. If you see that it's a deep fake, it's a deep fake. You're not sticking to sports enough. (laughs) All right, we will see you all next week. Thank you, Leach. Thank you, Roth. Bye. Bye, everyone.